Today's sermon text comes from John chapter 9, verses 24 through 41. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in praying with the Apostle Paul that we would be children who walk in the light. God, I love in Paul's letter to the Ephesians how he begins with your sovereign authority over all things, Father who planned all things, Son who came into the world to save his people, Spirit who now works to redeem those and draw them. In order that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would be able to see Jesus for who he is. That we would be made children of the Father. Would you use this story of this man born blind. Given eyes to see. To call us into your light. To open our eyes and to make us more faithful. That we would stand in a knowledge of Christ. No matter the cost. 
And in that, we would get to watch you do your amazing transformation work, not only among us, but in our world. We long to see it. We long to see you shine into the darkness of our world that seems to be getting darker in so many places. Use us to reflect your light back into this world and watch you do amazing transformation work for the glory and fame of the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been paying attention to the news at all lately, or are at all engaged in politics, you may have heard over the last few months that the Minnesota legislature and our governor have been working very hard to pass laws that contradict reality. They, make, they want to make abortion easier and more desirable. They are trying to confuse children and permanently alter their God-given bodies. They want to limit parents' influence in their children's education and decision-making. They disrupt the natural order of building generational wealth as a family. And they make up, they're trying to make upward mobility nearly impossible. Our culture is sprinting towards an abyss of sin and hopelessness that's going to leave destruction in its wake for generations to come. And we're embracing ideas that our grandparents would have found abhorrent. Becoming exactly what they fought against. No longer now is the battlefield some uh, on some beach on a continent on the other side of the world. No longer is the threat some tyrannical leader in a foreign country. The enemy has found its way into our gates. It's brought values of victimhood, oppression, self-glorification into our in- institutions of learning. This delusion is in our sports, movies, and music. It's propaganda is in our corporations, our shopping, our advertising. This soul cancer even informs our own medical industry. And sadly, its idols are being erected in many of our churches, from our pulpits, even in our homes, from our own pockets. There's tremendous pressure to give in to the world systems. And if you try at all to stand or push back, you will quickly feel the weight of that pressure from every direction. The world will tell you that you don't know enough. Why don't you just step aside and trust the experts in this situation? The enemy will twist scripture and try to show you that you don't love your neighbor as well as we do. The tone police will tell you that you need to become more winsome. Because making people feel bad is breaking the 11th commandment. There is no 11th commandment. And even when the enemy can't find a hole in your defense, then they will just attack you, attack your character with no basis for doing so. It is a spiritual minefield out there. How can ordinary people like us stand against it? How do we ever stand a chance of turning it around? So many baseless, merciful, merciless attacks from every direction. We're not powerful or influential. What can we do when we're just trying to put food on the tables to feed our kids and train them not to become crazy? 
This morning, I want to encourage you from this amazing text, becoming one of my favorite Bible stories, I want to encourage you that the odds, even though the odds appear completely stacked against us, you have everything you need in Christ to stand. In Christ, you are smarter, wiser, richer, stronger than any worldly politician, doctor, professor. You might, you have sight. And if you seek to glorify God in your sight, even if it's just a little bit of knowledge and strength and wealth you have, he will use that through you to shame the wealthy, humble the mighty, and make foolish the wise. So stand in the knowledge of truth no matter the cost. This is our main idea today, and my goal is to strengthen you for that stand. This formerly blind man is such an inspiration to ordinary faithfulness, to stand firm in the face of very similar kinds of pressures that we see here. We're going to observe his example today in two sections. First, in verses 24 to 34, we will witness a master class in apologetics by a formerly blind man, unlearned in the scriptures, but he stands in the knowledge of God. He's able to see the most basic truths of reality that even these learned Pharisees can't see, but it costs him greatly. And our formerly blind hero then soon learns that he must trust in the rescue of Christ in verses 35 and 41. Confident that justice will come. This is such a fantastic story to encourage your ordinary faith to know that God is at work using you. So we can all learn how to stand in the knowledge of the truth no matter the cost. So we're going to read again verses 24 to 34 and see the scene of the man standing in the knowledge of God. Read again with me in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, what? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Now this is the a second time that the Pharisees have called him into this trial for questioning. 
Remember from last week, Jesus healed this man born blind. He's never seen in his entire life until today. Jesus healed him to display the works of God in his life. God is going to show off this, his glory through this pitiable blind man. And as we see throughout the story, the work of God isn't so much the healing, though that's a big part of it. The work of God is the continued, consistent testimony and defense of the truth from this man, despite the heavy pressure of everyone on him. Because he has spiritual sight. In his first interaction with the Pharisees, back in verses 13 to 17, the man's consistent testimony, mud, water, sight, that drove a wedge into the Pharisees, into the religious council, over where Jesus is from. Not his hometown, but where does he get this authority, power, and teaching? Most of them are adamant. He is not from God. Do not listen to that man. But others just don't quite see how that can be a true statement. Including this blind man who had declared Jesus to be a prophet. Meaning he thinks in some way he is from God. And then we have this investigation of the man's parents. That introduces the theme of knowledge into this debate about Jesus' origins. There are, there are some things these parents know for certain, but others, they admit, they don't know. And that's really the problem here, getting these things backwards, give, putting your foundation on the wrong knowledge. We see the Pharisees taking a stand here on the wrong kind of knowledge. But the formerly blind man stands on a knowledge of Christ. And it quite surprises him how clearly he can see and they can't. So it's quite ironic now that they bring the blind, formerly blind man back in to explain it to them. This whole scene should leave you laughing a lot. That these educated Pharisees need instruction on something so basic like how to tie your shoes from a man who hasn't been able to see until today. They start off telling him, give glory to God. This is kind of like the oath process, oath-taking process, swearing him in. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? It's telling him, God is listening, he's watching, and you will be judged for what you say. Ironic, the words that are coming out of their mouth. They don't realize that this man has been glorifying God the whole time. And his glory is about to shine even brighter and expose their words as the ones that judgment is coming upon. They make this false claim that Jesus is a sinner. Tell us the truth. He is, isn't he? The man really knows nothing about Jesus. Remember, he's never seen Jesus in his life. When he was healed, he was, he had to go down to the water. Jesus was already gone. By the time his eyes were opened, he was far away from Jesus. So he doesn't really know anything about Jesus' life to declare with certainty that this man has never sinned. But apparently the Pharisees know so much better. They claim with such certainty, we know Jesus is a sinner. It's the wrong kind of knowledge. The blind man says, this is not a knowledge I have. I just can't explain that to you. But I do have an experience with Jesus' 
that gives me certainty in one thing. Though I was blind, now I see. This is one truth he can confidently stand on. He knows it better than anything else in his life. He knows it and he is going to build his case from that truth. That's a truth that a certainty that doesn't come from himself. He didn't build up this testimony. It's just a humble admission that he doesn't know much of anything at all because of his own blind condition. But Jesus came in and gave him this truth. He's leaning into Jesus more. Contrary to the Pharisees who are leaning into their own self-righteous understanding of the circumstance. But they do admit there's something they don't know. Unfortunately for them, it's the one thing they need to know. The one thing that shapes reality. That holds the world together. This truth is right before their eyes. But it's like they're standing in a dark room with their eyes closed. It doesn't matter where the the truth is. How close it is to their face. They can't see it. So they ask again in verse 26. Explain this to us. How did he heal you? Where? What happened? And now he could go back to his mud, water, sight testimony. But he's done that so many times already. The man asks in verse 27 a couple more questions. I'm just trying to process what is happening here. And then it dawns on him. Wait a second. He knows something that they don't know. I imagine like the corner of his mouth curling up a little bit. And he's like this, the little brother taunting his older brother. I know something you don't know. I don't think he's really trying to be mean, but this formerly blind man realizes he sees something. And in that seeing, he sees also that these guys are up to something sinister. It's also very clear to him, even in his tiny amount of knowledge, he sees truth and they don't. He sees that they're sinfully twisting scripture to hold on to their power. So he sarcastically asks them, knowing the answer is no. You don't also want to be his disciples too, do you? It's really just sarcasm meant to expose their sin and folly. Just a a well-placed question. And oh boy, does this make them mad. Hits them right between the eyes. John says the Pharisees begin to revile the man, cursing him, mocking him for him as an ignorant stooge. What does this guy know? They proceed to make the trust the experts argument here. It's really a self-defeating argument. They're about to expose how empty their expertise is. They say that the blind man, you go ahead and get your knowledge from Jesus. We are disciples of Moses. There they are. Argument over. Mic drop. Checkmate. Stay in your lane, blind man. But look at this false dichotomy that they just asserted. You can follow Jesus, but we will follow Moses. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5, right at the end of chapter 5, verse 46. He says, if you believed in Moses, then you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. So... 
If they were disciples of Moses, they would become disciples of Jesus too, which reveals that they're not really disciples of Moses. They're just twisting Moses' teaching for their own sinful desires in order order to hold on to their corrupt power. This is what trusts the experts people do. They talk down to you. They twist the truth to hold on to their superiority. True experts, though, will invite you into the conversation. A good doctor will spend time with you and explain to you what's going on and invite you to evaluate and make a a well-reasoned decision. And then invite you to check their work. Go ahead, ask another person. Get a second opinion. Just like I expect you to examine what I say. Open your Bible, study, dive in deep, correct me if I'm wrong. See if what I'm preaching is the truth. But those who are corrupt will just give a condescending pat on the head and say, we know better. As the Pharisees do in verse 29, we know God has spoken to Moses, our teacher. But as for this man, we don't even know where he's come from. They're so confident in their prideful ignorance. And this statement is proof that they're blind. They don't see This formerly blind man is about to take them to school. They have left a huge gaping hole in their argument. How do they know that God spoke through Moses? Well, God did some pretty miraculous signs through Moses, right? Plagues, Red Sea, manna, water from a rock, serpent on a pole. These are like once for all time history defining miracles. That proved God was working through Moses. So, how can these Pharisees determine if God is speaking through Jesus? Maybe by doing some once-for-all-time history-defining miracles, which he has been doing repeatedly, especially now in this case. This is what the blind man can see. He realizes, these guys aren't as smart and intimidating as everyone thinks. This is amazing! It's so freeing to him. He can see something something so clearly that it amazes him at how clearly he sees it and they don't. So he sarcastically proclaims again, what an amazing thing! In verse 30, he's singing, how marvelous! Can you believe it? Again, It's not sarcasm like for cutting them down. It's not this prideful thing. It's just highlighting the folly of their position. How is it possible that I know this and you guys don't? This is crazy. Let me explain, he says in verses 30 to 33. He's going to give them a basic lesson in logic. He starts with common ground. Look, we all agree. We all know from scripture, God does not listen to sinners. He does not do such powerful miracles through guys who are in sin. Yes, we agree. Maybe we could say that another way. The the opposite side of the same coin. But God does do great powerful things through people who are obedient to him, who are devoted to God. Right? We agree. Now stick with me. I'm going to take the next step. Never in history has a person been healed of a genetic blindness. Okay, got it? Now, A plus B, you can search your Bible up and down. You'll never find an example of that. A plus B, 
here I am standing in front of you. I'm evidence that God did that. This is one of those once for all time history defining miracles. Your, I'm living proof that your premise is wrong. You are wrong. It can't be true. If Jesus is not from God, he could do no such thing as this. Irrefutable logic from a man who's never been to logic school, never been to Torah school. He met with Jesus and Jesus made him able to see it. The evidence is clear. And the Pharisees have just been embarrassed by this formerly blind man. Their sin is laid on the table for everybody to see. So what do they do? They do what everybody does when their sin is exposed and they have no argument back. They attack the man. You were born a sinner. This is what we're up against. Okay, that that's really helpful. Thanks for letting me know. They're still operating under this assumption that His blindness was caused by his sin. He is an ignorant sinner, so he's not able to think clearly. But what Jesus is trying to explain, what he'll explain in the following verses, is that we are all born utterly in sin. The only difference between the two sides in this argument is that one of the guys acknowledges his blindness and the others can't. And this guy's constant presence is a reminder of their sinful condition. So now they do what all power-hungry, sin-hiding liars do when personal character attacks don't work. They censor him. They try to cut out his voice. They kick him out of the synagogue, which is a declaration to the community, don't listen to a word this guy says. Cancel culture existed 2,000 years ago. But so what? We don't care. We don't fear being canceled. Jesus immediately moves into a, or John moves us now to a scene with Jesus, giving us hope, telling us not to fear these efforts to cancel us. This man's simple stand on the knowledge of God transforms into trust in the rescue of Christ. In verse 35. Let's read those again. Jesus heard that they cast, had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I think the most comforting thing in this entire text is the sovereignty of God from beginning to end of this chapter. God designed this man's eyes. God came in and healed this man's eyes. God's spirit orchestrating the conversation in this courtroom scene. And now, once he's kicked out, God in Christ is pursuing, sovereignly pursuing him to find him and comfort him and grow him in his faith. After Jesus finds him, he says, he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
So you can see the subtle shift from the theme of knowledge, what does he know, to a theme of trust, belief. What is he believing? These two things aren't antithetical. They're not in opposition to one another. People today think that faith is the opposite of knowledge. That faith is a blind leap in the dark, or it's persistent action in the face of of evidence against you. It's just hope, false hope in a fairy tale. But John is telling us that knowledge and faith go hand in hand. This man was healed by first believing that Jesus had something for him. So he went to the water, washed his eyes, and he was healed. That faith, that little bit of faith gave him knowledge of how things work. Knowledge of Jesus' power. He stood firm on that little bit of knowledge and he's being rewarded with more faith. He approaches Jesus, or Jesus approaches him, and draws him further in to give him more. There's more he has not seen that he does not know. First, he called Jesus a prophet, which was true, but he's so much more than that. He's also the son of man. That term, it can be confusing But it's loaded with all kinds of biblical imagery. It doesn't just mean he's a human or that he's the best man that ever lived. The son of man is a picture from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 particularly. That he is this Messiah, this reigning king, this God man who has all authority over heaven and earth. And he's going to come and judge, destroy his enemies, reward the righteous. And give more glorious sight to those who follow him. So he's asking, his question is an invitation to trust him more. To trust that even though he was just kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus has the power to correct that injustice, that evil that was done against him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus can confront and correct the injustice that's happening in our world? At first, this man doesn't quite understand that Jesus is talking about himself. He asks, who is he? He's just a little shaken up, I think, coming out of this scene. I I really could use some encouragement. I would like to meet this man because I'm feeling pretty beat up right now. Even though I just got my sight, that was intense. So Jesus tells him, you have seen him and it is the one speaking to you. Did you catch that, the subtle verb tense that he used there? Not you do see him, you are seeing him. You have seen him. There's some past tense involved in that, even though this is the first time he's ever laid eyes on Jesus. You saw him before, in some previous moment, right up to this moment that you're standing here looking at him, hearing his words. You've been seeing him for a while now. Not just with your eyes but with the eyes of your heart, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. That's really what this whole story has been all about. He has proved his sight, his vision of Jesus through faithful testimony in defense of the truth. And now he's rewarded with an even more beautiful vision of Jesus with his nearness and his promise of imminent rescue. He proclaims his trust in Jesus and falls down on his face before his Lord. The Pharisees commanded him to give glory to God. And here he's doing it on his face, worshiping his Savior. 
The word worship here literally means to get down on your face, to kiss the ground, lay down, prostrate, get as low as you can before someone of vast, superior power, authority, intellect, all those things. That's happening here. I don't think he quite realizes the great chasm that exists between him and Jesus. But what he does know, he responds to. He knows that Jesus has come to bring healing. He doesn't know all about his full divinity yet, about his coming death and resurrection. But he takes a step of faith, trusts based on what he already knows, and now he knows even more. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus healed his eyes and know that one day he's going to heal the whole world. He worships based on that trust. We have even more knowledge than that. We have a greater responsibility to respond with greater faith. We know that it will take the death of Jesus on a cross to take away all of our sin, to bury it in the ground. And he rose from the dead to give us eyes to see. This is the salvation that is now becoming this man's, even through his simple faith. His small but powerful knowledge. And he lays it all before Jesus as a small act of worship, which is greatly glorifying to God. No matter how small your knowledge and faith is, it brings so much glory to the eternal creator who is sustaining you. This is the whole reason Jesus came. He came to rescue people out of sin and blindness that we're stuck in if we cry out for help. He came to give you sight so you can follow him into eternity. He came to strengthen you so you can endure through all the trials of this world until you're made whole in the new creation. But there's a flip side to that, a necessary corollary. The flip side is that if you don't acknowledge that you are blind, if you don't admit your natural born sinfulness, you'll be stuck in your guilt on this day of judgment. Jesus says he came that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Everyone is born blind. What he means is that some realize it and some are fooling themselves. The blind man saw, knew that he was blind. And his blindness was far worse than just not able to open, not being able to open his eyes. Jesus healed him so he could see his truth. The Pharisees are overhearing this teaching and they are standing firm in their prideful ignorance. Their question in verse 40 asks, you're not suggesting we're blind too, right? Because that can't, no, we, we can see just fine, thank you. Their argument over the blind man's healing, their insistence that Jesus is not from God, all of that is proof of their blindness. But this fact that they keep on insisting they can see just fine seals their condemnation. It's the final nail in their coffin. If only they would just admit it, Jesus would remove their guilt. But he won't. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can see just fine. Don't let your education, your career success, your wealth, whatever you have, even your ability to drive here today, trick you into thinking you can see. 
No matter how much you think you know, we must realize there is so much more for us to know. The, the vast quantities of human knowledge we've accumulated are only a fraction, tiny, infinitesimal fraction of a percent of all the knowledge there is to know. And out there in the rest of it is vital knowledge for our eternal future. It is with that that you must surrender to Jesus to say, teach me, show me, open my eyes, otherwise it will carry you to judgment. But if you have surrendered your blindness to Jesus, we know that by his death and resurrection, he removes your guilt, gives you eyes to see. Not maybe see everything, we still see through a glass dimly. But like the blind man, he's given you enough truth to stand firm on that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, will destroy the wisdom of the world, the wise, and make foolish the wisdom of the world. You don't need to argue. You don't need to weasel your way into influential positions. You act faithfully and their folly will be made evident. Evident. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 22 that people claiming to be wise make themselves more into blind fools. They exchange the glory of God for worship of created things, worship of self, worship of technology and science, worship of entertainment, worship of government. All these things meant to be good gifts. But worshiping them leads to inordinate, disordered, destructive passions. And that's the world we now live in. A culture handed over to blindness, using God's gifts to keep them blind. Do not fear being canceled. Stand on the knowledge of truth, no matter the cost. You can stand because you know one thing for certain. Though I was blind, now I see. You know God is in control of all things. Jesus came to heal. You know that he will bring justice on this corrupt world and one day make all things right. And that gives you courage to rise, stand, and work by faith. Don't let others try to shame you into silence. Don't let them revile you. Don't let them intimidate you, making you think that you're not smart enough. Stand firm on this, on Christ's truth in a knowledge of Him. Open your Bible and grow in a knowledge of Him. And as you take steps of faithfulness, He will reward you with more faith and more knowledge and more faith for you to stand on. Stand firm in your knowledge of Christ. Use your brain. Use your knowledge, your kindness, occasionally some sarcasm. All these things to glorify God wherever he has placed you as you stand in the knowledge of truth no matter the cost, knowing he is with you and he will bring you home to live with him forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We can stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. We have the knowledge of the gospel the lenses that finally fix our eyes so we can see the world and how it was made, how we are to live in it. We can see the scheming and the corruption. And even seeing it, we don't need to be afraid because we know Jesus is on his throne. His spirit is working. You will shame the powerful. You will make foolish the wisdom of the wise. We are just called to stand.
to work and build our homes, to love one another in our church, and trust that you will put us in the places where we, in our simple faith, in our simple knowledge, can highlight, expose the wickedness of this world. And in so doing, you will call some out of the darkness, and you will further cement some in their judgment. Help us, help us to be faithful by the power of Jesus' shed blood, his righteous resurrection, and his spirit now living in us. Amen.